This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Okay, are we ready to roll? Okay, I won't start. These little guys. I, I think I got them. Oh, are they? On the maximum. Okay, good. Just making sure. Try that sort of awesome kind of people, but I think Josh will get me started. People. Okay, is everybody in from the? Almost. Well, tonight, why would God require praise? There's all sorts of angles on this. I'm going to take a few of them. Uh, Next week, before I get into this, uh, Ben is talking about on being in a story. It's not about a story. It's on being in a story. Uh, And the 18th of March, if I can read it, is such fine print. Uh, Can we be at home in the shadow of the fall, reflecting on home with the help of poets by Sarah Chestnut. That's a big theme for us, a shadow of the fall, and and how to live there, because that's the place where we've got to live. Um, So going forward on this, I'll give you a preview of where we're headed. Can you read that, or can you get, can you see from this side? Sort of. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, people come to stay at Labrie, and some of them have serious grievances about the Christian faith from within the church and within the faith, and from without the church and without the faith. Uh, Christians have grievances about God just as well as anybody else, somewhat different ones usually. But these grievances have shifted a bit over the years. I first stumbled into Labrie trying to avoid getting drafted in 1964. Uh, And then the objections were about faith and knowledge. How could the Bible be God's word since it's written by human beings in human language with all its fallibilities and distortions and, and so on? How can you believe in an infinite God through arguments that are built from a finite world? Etc. Uh, more recently, though, objections seem to be coming much more from morality, from the ethics of God, uh, particular problems with specific biblical teachings, um, actions, commands, uh, the moral character of God himself is suspect. And that's really getting more to what we're talking about tonight. I remember one person friend of ours asking, why would I believe in a God that is less moral than I am? 
that's a very good question, but it's one that it's a long answer if we take the question seriously. But I thought I'd pick up one of these grievances this evening and hope we could learn something from it. I've learned something from it. It's the objection that God requires us to requires us to praise Him. Isn't that egotistical? Isn't that um, Him being a narcissist? Um, Psalm ninety six verse nine: Worship the Lord in holy splendor; tremble before Him all the earth. Who would command this about Himself? Isn't that a voice of someone who is insecure about his dignity? Sort of the picture of a, a, I think that I'm dealing with here, is a petty dictator who surrounds himself only with people who will tell him he's wonderful, he's wise, he's virtuous, he's intelligent and always right. And don't those who praise him do it not necessarily because they believe the truth of their own praises, but in their hope that in flattering him they'll win his favors? in money uh, and power for themselves and protect themselves from what um, petty dictators do to people who disapprove. So they are are corrupt flatterers. So in this model, God himself and the Christians who praise him are scorned and despised, not admired or respected, if if we pick up this model. And if someone thinks that this is an accurate description of the God of the Bible, then it's hard to blame them uh, for not admiring God and for not admiring God's admirers uh, for worshiping this God. Uh, the demand or requirement to praise or worse still to worship seems to invite condescension and resentment for the Christian faith itself. And I think um, I of course don't know where any of you are, uh, but uh, that's a very. Com- I think it's a very common issue. If we see ourselves and our own friends and family and neighbors um, with an ever-present need to be praised by other people, we usually see it as a character flaw on their part, um, and we would be likely to pity them or uh, try and get help for them. Come on in the seats. Here and there. That's, that's it. Okay. Um, think of Shakespeare's classic tragedy, King Lear, who, because of his over-the-top demand for love, loyalty, and praise from his daughters, uh, brought insanity and death down on his own head and ruined and lost everything he'd ever uh, valued in his life. The Bible itself warns against the snare of wanting too much uh, attention and praise and glory from other people and being dependent on that praise. Um, And yet, God himself commands exclusive worship. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Uh, Isaiah 44. Uh, So I want to start by looking and seeing what praise is all about, so we can begin to get a hold of this. As usual, C.S. Lewis is helpful here. I will be tapping on him in a few minutes. Um, Praise itself is a wonderful human capacity or ability to be filled with admiration about something that uh, 
shows you excellence in whatever it is that you value. Praise is all over the place and all around us in our society. Just listen to anyone talk who loves sports. Lots of chance to do this with the Winter Olympics on television, with the Super Bowl just past us. I heard lots of praise. Did you see the figure skating? Uh, did you watch the giant slalom? Uh, you see what they're doing on snowboards now? Uh, and so on. Uh, none of which I can quite believe what they do with snowboards now. Anyway, I heard lots of also of praise after the Super Bowl. These amazing acrobatics and skills of moving the ball or keeping others from moving the ball. Uh, throwing, catching, running, all of the above. Amazing and to watch. So in sports we see beauty, strength, speed, precision, coordination, teamwork, endurance, strategy, character. Any one of these can cause us to respond, wow, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is beautiful. That was beautiful. And throughout, a great desire to, when we have something that's praiseworthy, we want to talk about it. We want to praise and tell other people, you should see this. You should check this out. Or you should have seen it. It's too late now. Uh, but a great desire to tell someone else about what you value yourself. Uh, it needs to be recognized. This is praise. That's praise I've just been describing. Of course, it's not only in sports that draws admiration and praise out of us. Think about music, the beauty and power of music. Um, think of the arts in general and how much praise gets poured out on the arts. Think of the, the great museums in the world and all sorts of art forms. Um, think of the praise we see and we, we bring to the created natural world. Landscapes, seascapes, mountainscapes, the sky, the sunset or sunrise, uh, food, children, gardens, well-run companies, discoveries of science, advances in medicine, Developments in technology all call forth our praise. Huge variety of things to stimulate our, our sense of, of, uh, of admiration. Inspire a response that we see here, touch, which is admiration and awe. Wonder, praise for beauty, strength, creativity, cleverness, power of what we experience in this world. Uh, to much of what we experience, praise seems the only appropriate response the only fitting response. Uh, it's likely to have nothing to do with flattery. It's just called forth by what we see, by what we witness, by what we've experienced. To not admire it makes you somehow less. If you didn't praise something, maybe you missed out on something. You missed something good, something majestic, something important, something beautiful in the world. I remember a man complaining about basketball, which he found totally boring as a sport. It's just men running back and forth across the floor from one end to the other, ruining their knees. <laughs> well, if we're particularly lovers of basketball, we might, we might think that he's missing something. That something isn't connecting. Uh, that he's somehow... It's not so much something wrong with basketball, it's something, someone being sort of tone-deaf to the sport. Uh, we might see his lack of praise as at least a loss to him, but maybe even a flaw in terms of lack of imagination or something wrong. Uh, as our past and present students know well, we regularly have arts nights here. We just had one last week, didn't we? 
um, where our students uh, make music, read poetry, read a story that they've written, show a film that they've done, an enormous variety of things. And I'll call attention to one from years past. Some of them, quite a few of us know here actually, did this. One of our workers at the time got a whiteboard out and decided to demonstrate for our pleasure and entertainment the beauty of a mathematical proof. Okay? Some of you will probably know who I'm talking about right away. He did the proof with enthusiasm and praise uh, for the proof. Some of the people understood it, loved it, and agreed that it really was beautiful and, uh, and praised it for its beauty. For me, it was so far above my head that I understood absolutely nothing of the proof, let alone the beauty of the proof. Um, and and because uh, I am mathematically tone deaf, um, uh, the lack was in me. I clapped, but only out of a mixture of politeness and hypocrisy <laughs> to, pre- to, to pretend that I'd understood it. But the, the no praise, what I'm, my point is the no praise was because of my ignorance. And then it just missed on me and other people who knew some or quite a bit of math, in my in my opinion, uh, took it in, and, and really, they didn't diss him for doing such an idea, but they really did praise him for getting it right. Anyway, so praise is a human expression of admiration and approval for something that's meaningful to us, enough to want to express it, to draw attention to it, to lift it up. So, what do we praise? Praise is sometimes reflective and goes on for a long time. We have long admiration, admiration that lasts for years. But is also sometimes a spontaneous response that you will forget tomorrow. But whatever was excellent, whatever was made you wonder, moved you. Uh, We're living in a society that's filled with praise for sports, for cars, for sex, for real estate, for balance sheets, for stock prices, for moral commitments, for compassion, radical compassion, for academic achievements, for excellence and beauty, wherever it is found. As a Christian, I don't want to stop anyone from praising anything necessarily. Well, maybe from praising some things. Uh, But praise can be a source of joy for the one doing it and can be shared by others. But I do want to go beyond it to the ultimate object of praise, behind and beneath it all, which is the praise of God. The praise of God is different. God is not just bigger than we are, and so it's a difference in scale. It's not just a difference in scale. Um, God is qualitatively different beyond all or any other object of praise that we might have. We do well to start with the reality that God created each one of us, as well as everything else that we ever might be tempted to praise. There's nothing on earth that you will ever praise that God didn't make, at least in its original form. That puts him in a completely different category from everything else that we know and ever could know. But bringing the living God into our polite discussion in a secular world uh, changes everything. It's not just another object. Is, do we, is this praiseworthy or not? But bringing God in as a personal reality changes everything we see and uh, everything around us. If there is a living God who is real 
and is involved in our lives that puts us as creatures in a completely different place than we knew about before we heard of him. And then many people imagine themselves to be in this secular society. It means we are not cosmic free agents, masters of, the, of our universe. We are creatures of a living God as in made by God, as is the ground we walk on and the air we breathe made by God. That in turn means that we are radically dependent on this God. Whether we realize it or not, whether we have any clue or not, we are dependent on it. We're also accountable to him for the way we live, the things we decide to do in this life. Now, this does not necessarily sit easy with people today. It sure didn't sit easy with me the first time it was presented to me as a person of, I don't know, 21, 22 years old, when I first heard the Christian faith present as something to be believed, as opposed to, well, I'm not, I'm an American, I'm not, and I'm not a Hindu, I must be a Christian, this kind of a approach to things as just being part of living in a certain atmosphere. Um, it was put. It was presented to me as that God is alive and he really wants you. He wants to connect with you, which totally rearranged uh, anything I'd ever thought about him. Um, pray, and to praise God and actually mean it puts us in a place of humility before him, which we maybe aren't ready for. In our secular world, dedicated as much as it is to personal comfort, I think of Francis Schaeffer's summary of what happens, what what values were left with after the collapse of the radical left in the 60s. It was, was, he had two horrendous values, personal peace and affluence. Um, if that's where we are, this intrusion of God can come as something of a shock. I love the way Lewis captures this. I'll, I'll read you a couple of paragraphs. Um, from him, men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. It is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. Therefore, this very point at which so many draw back, I would have done so myself if I could, and proceed to f- no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching us at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him? But we never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. So it is a sort of Rubicon. One goes across or not. But if one does, there is no manner of security against miracles. One may be in for anything. What I want to get, get at is the, is the shock of allowing thinking seriously about a living God who wants you, who is looking for you, to, be, to let that into one's experience. 
That's, that prospect, I think, can incentivize people to become suddenly tone-deaf to God. Because if God is our creator, if he is praiseworthy, he has authority over us. He is someone we should back up and praise, and simply, simply in recognizing who he is. We live among friends and neighbors who have no desire to praise anything beyond themselves and their comforts in life and the world they created for themselves. For this reason, C.S. Lewis himself rejected the Christian God for years, his early years. He made it very clear um, he didn't want anybody meddling in his life. He really liked making his own decisions, setting his own course, setting the direction of his life, nobody messing with him. Um, and God kept pressing on him and he eventually had to and he felt the danger of the loss of control of his life but the Bible itself challenges us to recognize that the living God is there and he is praiseworthy let's think for a moment about a couple of things that we do know about God he's our creator and our redeemer and I want to look at those two things um terms of what we um, of two um, we could pick all sorts of things uh, of things that we should uh, see as praiseworthy or find praiseworthy in, in, uh, in his truth and the truth about him um, I'll start with creation I think our with, because of our familiarity with it maybe uh, we have sadly domesticated the first verse of the Bible. Uh, in the beginning, God created heaven, the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. So I'm going to read you about three quarters of a page out of an old article in the New Republic by Greg Easterbrook saying it's called Science Sees the Light. This is about the Big Bang. And uh, uh, it's interesting. You will find, as I did uh, I don't expect you to understand everything in what I'm going to read. I certainly don't understand it. But I do expect you to be able to understand the drift of what he's saying. Um, suppose you accept the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe. Okay, here is what you believe, roughly according to the model proposed by Alan Guth, a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You believe that once upon a time, all the potential of the cosmos, all of the potential for a firmament of 40 billion galaxies at last count, it's well up above that now, um, was packed into a point smaller than a proton. You can believe that within this plenum of the incipient cosmos was neither hypercompressed matter, nor super-dense energy, nor any tangible substance. The Genesis plenum was a, quote, false vacuum, unquote, through which coerced or coursed a weightless, empty quantum mechanical probability framework called a scalar field. You probably don't, aren't exactly clear on what a scalar field is, but then neither are most physics PhDs. Next, you believe that when the Big Bang sounded, the universe expanded from a pinpoint to a cosmolog to cosmological size in less than one second, space itself hurtling outward in a torrent of pure physics, the bow wave of the new cosmos moving at trillions of times the speed of light. 
Did you ever learn that nothing could move faster than the speed of light? I got that. I've learned that for ages. But this is what this, the, the whole idea is. Trillions of times the speed of light. You can believe that this process unleashed such powerful distortions that for an instant the hatchling universe was curved to a surreal degree. Extreme curvature caused normal, rare, virtual particles to materialize from the quantum nether world in cornucopian numbers, cornucopian numbers, the stuff of existence being created virtually out of nothing, as the Scientific American once phrased it. Further, you believe that as some atomic particles began to unbuckle from the inexplicable proto-reality, both matter and antimatter formed. Immediately, these commodities began to collide and annihilate themselves, vanishing as mysteriously as they came. The only reason our universe is here today is that the bang was slightly asymmetrical. Its yield favoring matter over antimatter by about one part per hundred million. Owing to this, when the stupendous cosmic commencement day ended amid sundering energies beyond comprehension, a residue of standard matter survived, and from it, the galaxies formed. That is to say, you believe that a microscopic, transparent, empty point in primordial space-time contained just not just one universe, but enough potential for a hundred million universes. It's wise to take the Big Bang hypothesis seriously, since considerable evidence weighs in its favor. The galaxies are expanding away from one another as if they had uh, as they had excuse me as if they had once been in the same place then hurled outward the interstellar void is slightly warmer than absolute zero suggesting the universe was once superheated by something much stronger than the output of stars the earliest nebulae appear to be composed of precisely the mix of elements that the big bang calculations suggest Yet for sheer, extravagant implausibility, nothing in theology or metaphysics could hold a candle to the bang. Surely if this description of the cosmic genesis came from the Bible or the Koran rather than the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, it would be treated as a preposterous myth. Just as surely the sort of majestic events hypothesized by current thinking about the Big Bang seems hauntingly similar in character to other more traditional arguments about splendid powers at the core of existence. Something extremely grand must must have called forth our firmament, and whether that something was natural or supernatural may be mere semantics. Reflecting on this, Alan Sandage, one of the world's foremost astronomers, proposed that the Big Bang is best understood as, quote, a miracle, unquote, triggered by some kind of transcendent power. And that goes on. But... but even as, as much as I can, as little as I can understand of these words, you just get something the size of a proton uh, expanding to the present universe, which could have been enormously bigger than that, were it not for the collision of matter and antimatter. Um, what an amazing thing! This was written a few years ago. I've no doubt there may be more recent spins. There's lots of theorizing about this. Um, but if there's an updated version, I doubt very much if it's less extraordinary than what I just read. Uh, because they're dealing with something that they can't get around. Uh, of, of what in the world happened? Um, one thing I would say here, the, the, 
the, the, what the Bible suggests in Genesis 1-1 is not that a proton-sized thing existed, but there was a spoken word at the beginning. Uh, without the benefit of MIT, the Apostle Paul steered our thoughts in this way. Uh, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. He's saying here that creation itself pushes us to awe and wonder and praise and honor and gratitude to God as our creator. But Paul says, just in this one verse in the beginning of Romans, that because of our sin, we resist, we fight that tooth and claw because of our sin. Because it threatens our autonomy. It threatens our ability to control our own lives. It stands, it stands against it. It's something immovable. How can you tinker with this? Uh, and, and, and adapt that to make it more favorable to make me f- feel at home as an autonomous, I'm going to decide what's true and right and wrong uh, individual. Um, because of our sin, we resist acknowledging God as creator and look for any other explanation. And not just in the first century. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, and I would love to, I, I don't want to do a lecture on this myself, I'd love to get someone here who's really done some physics, to do just the origin of the Big Bang Theory, just the 20th century, uh, from, the, from the beginning of the 20th century through just as much as 1930, where a huge amount of battle was going on or discussion. There was enormous resistance to the possibility of a, of a bang, uh, to, to that explanation for the origin of the universe. It assumed that the stuff of the universe, matter and energy, whatever, had basically always existed as eternal, and it was more or less, it more or less stats, sat still. It wasn't moving anywhere. It was just fixed, and there it was. But evidence began to communicate, or accumulate rather, that it was expanding, that the galaxies were moving away from us and away from each other. This was fought against passionately by many physicists, Einstein included. There were alternate theories, uh, all sorts of alternate theories. By now, uh, it's simply, I don't think anybody's taking the alternate theories uh, very seriously, including Einstein came around to it to accept this himself, uh, was, uh, admitting that his rejection of the Big Bang was the worst blunder of his career. And ironically, his own general theory of relativity was one of the things that really that disproved the, the, state, the, the, uh, the, the fixed uh, view of, of, the, of the cosmos and its origin. The upsetting shock of the Big Bang was that it, it had been obvious for ages that we didn't need to have a beginning to the universe. It had always been here. We didn't need it. There's no need to come up with an explanation for it. It had always existed. But the, the shock, the thing that, that bowled them over and the thing that troubled them so much is that if you have a beginning, how in the world do you explain that? What happened? They had no explanation for a beginning. So the fact that they expand, everything's expanding, the minute they show that for sure, 
they realize you you play time backwards, and there must have been everything must be coming together in the in, in the past to a point where everything was one and then blew apart. We look we're looking at, after an explosion at what happens. The stuff goes flying through um, space or whatever you call it. Uh, the question raised: How did it happen, or worse, who might have done it? It points to something completely beyond the possible explanations that were available to them. Something surprisingly like. And this was the problem, of course, that was resisted so much, surprisingly like the story of the Bible. Because science, you see, has freed itself from the superstitions of religion. We don't, we, we can't be, allow science to have any credibility and stay with credibility and come up with a, what the theologians have been saying for <laughs> hundreds of years. Uh, science has taken us away from the superstitious influence of religion. But, and that's why it was, it was so much resistance. I, Sir Arthur Eddington is a fascinating British physicist, uh, astronomer, involved very much in the discussions of the late 1920s, um, felt that the universe having a beginning was so preposterous and incredible that, quote, I feel almost an indignation that anyone should believe in it except myself. <laughs> I don't know how you make sense of that. But he'd come to believe it in himself, but it was still, even though he believed it, it was horrendous. And so nobody else should do it. Uh, uh, he finally accepted it more, more fully and concluded that uh, he finally conceded the beginning seems to present insuperable difficulties unless we agree to look at it as, as frankly supernatural. Now, that's not that everyone, all the uh, astrophysicists have become Christians. Uh, that's certainly not true. There's other theories flying around. And there's criticisms of it, so on, of, of particularly of the theological connection. And yet, there's something. The, the, what, however, we explain it. What, what happened? Uh, something doesn't happen out of nothing. Uh, what in the world happened? And it had. There was a beginning. There was a beginning. And so back to the apostle Paul. He seems to have nailed it. There's a real cause to praise God in awe and wonder. But that response is. It is fought against by human sin. Wherever it comes up, any place that, that drives people to really believe and trust in Christ and in God and go forward is going to be fought. Uh, but Paul says there's no excuses for missing it. And there's probably less excuse for us than for people of his time. And thanks to Galileo, Newton, and MIT, we know much more than Paul did about what we're looking at at the night sky. We have a more reason to awe, for awe and wonder because we know a little bit of the size of it all, the dimensions of it all, which he would have had no clue about. We don't have to wonder if praise of God isn't called for by the truth of what we can see on a clear night. This is the challenge of creation. This is the challenge that the Big Bang ought to give anybody. Uh, what is it? What happened? There's no, no one can argue anymore of matter and energy having been just being eternal, always being there, and some of it, so it doesn't need an explanation. This needs an explanation. It, it cries out for an explanation. Okay, that's the challenge of creation, or one of the parts of it anyway. Um, I've just tried to untame or undomesticate Genesis 1-1 for you. Uh, the Apostle John, uh, I'm, I'm shifting here to redemption began his gospel, his story of redemption, by finding Jesus, the word, back even before Genesis 1-1. His gospel starts 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. This is John introducing us to Jesus as God the Son, who had been, what he, in light of our discussion here, he had been a full player with the Father in the Big Bang. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. The creation wasn't just the work of the Father alone, it was the whole Trinity involved. The Son was involved in Genesis 1-1, in the, in the Big Bang, uh, creating heaven and earth out of nothing amid sundering energies beyond comprehension that I've, I've read you about. John is making the point that the one who brought us redemption is not some lesser divinity than the Father. But he counted on his, he counted his full glory and status as God to, to be set aside when he came to be born in Bethlehem uh, to begin the rescue operation to save us. Didn't set aside his divinity, but set aside his glory and status as God uh, to, to accomplish our redemption. Uh, I want to pick up this story at its, near its end. I'll just mention one uh, thing. Uh, Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, just after Judas had left supper, a few hours before he was arrested, he, he told his uh, disciples, I'll just give you a two, two sentences here, which will seem strange, but now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, Jesus was arrested, tried, and nailed to the cross by 9 o'clock the next morning. The crucifixion was the most shameful, inglorious, dishonorable, and painful torture that the Romans had ever invented. And they were pretty creative at that. But Jesus uses the word glory five times in these two sentences that you have here to refer to what was going to happen the next day. What in the world was he thinking about? You know, that's what is glorious about this uh, unbelievable, outrageous uh, event that would happen the next day? Uh, I think it was that uh, that his disciples and any who watched were about to see glory. They were about to see the glory of the character of God in his love revealed in a way that no one had ever seen it before. Anyone had ever seen it before. A crucified God to many is a, is a contradiction in terms. Was then and still is today. But not for the God of the Bible. It was, it was a contradiction to the disciples before it happened and before the resurrection happened. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus to save us would reveal the love of God more fully than anything else in the whole Bible. So much in the whole Bible, he's aiming forward to it, leads up to it. The Father and Son would bring glory to each other. The Father and his love sending the Son. The Son willing to step into this and, and, be, and suffer in this, at this level. Revealed to us in his, in his love, the, the love of God revealed, the glory of the love of God revealed is excellence, is glory, is something that demands praise. Uh, the price he was willing to pay to cancel our sins is glory. The glory of his love is praiseworthy. It calls forth 
They called for the praise of gratitude and wonder for redemption, for forgiveness, for acceptance, for salvation itself, and for the price Jesus paid to secure it. Uh, see, there's nothing that we can, there's, there's nothing about business as usual for God. The horrendous phrase I think Voltaire came up with was forgiveness, uh, c'est son métier. That's, uh, that's his bit, that's God's business. Uh, that's what he's good at. That's, not at all. Not if you read the Bible. If you'd taken the trouble to read the Bible, well, he did. He, he knew the Bible. But, 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 uh, to, to reflect on the Bible in depth, he'd see this is not just business as usual. This is a, a jarring of everything that, that should have been, uh, uh, the Son of God in fellowship with the Father for all eternity, uh, is under the judgment of God and the condemnation of God for the sins of millions of people. Uh, the fact that this was necessary to save us is not paying us a compliment. Um, but it does show us something of the amazing depth of the love of God for us. Anyone now can come to God asking for mercy through what Jesus has done for them. Salvation can't be earned or merited. It is received as a free gift with our empty hands because of what Jesus did, because of what happened on the cross. Uh, I think of the vast majority of people who become Christians realize that God is worthy of praise in at least the two ways that I've mentioned and probably uh, many more, as creator and redeemer. We're living in a broken and bent world in which the providence of God is still there, is still over us, over the whole. In this, but it's in this broken world that's filled with suffering that we are called to continue our trust in God as worthy of praise. Even when plans, our plans don't work out right, even when we endure suffering and difficulty, we are to be able to see uh, God as praiseworthy. I think back of the grievance that we started at the beginning of this talk of Christians praising God, uh, of the, the, the grievance that Christians praising God are like corrupt flatterers surrounding some tin pot tyrant, always giving praise in place of truth and in fear of being eliminated, but also in the hope of payoffs of money and power. Uh, the main thing is that these people knew or know, because there's plenty of them around today, we have plenty of tin pot tyrants uh, in the world today, uh, is that you don't tell the tin pot tyrant that he's out of line and that he's wrong, especially not out loud. If you have the courage to speak the truth to power, uh, we know what can happen. In Latin America, you are likely to disappear. In Saudi Arabia, like Jamal Khashoggi, you can be dismembered. In Russia, under the main tyrant of the hour, you can be poisoned like Alexei Navalny. Thank God he survived being poisoned, and he's, he's alive, uh, but still in prison. Uh, I think the last year I heard there were about 54 journalists who lost their lives for telling the truth in various countries throughout the world. Um, so with the tin pot tyrant, I'm saying you don't, you give him what he wants to hear. Uh, and that's, that's that. Otherwise you, you get it. Uh, so the main thing is to keep a positive face from the, to the outside world, keep smiling, everything is wonderful and kept in good order thanks to the tyrant's care and skill. But I want, to, I want you to compare this well-worn story in the world today. This is all over the place. Um, uh, to some of the prominent characters in the Bible. In the biblical story, 
when they thought God was out of line and doing something wrong, that he was being unjust, that he didn't know how to run his railroad, they spoke to God. They spoke straight as they saw it. Uh, some challenged uh, directly, some as lament, some as protest. They voiced their grievances to God. Abraham did, Moses did, Job did, David did, Jeremiah did, Habakkuk did. I love Abraham protesting toe-to-toe with God. Far be it from you to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth, judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, Abraham saying, God, that's too much judgment. You mustn't wipe out Sodom. They were talking about it. He was debating God. This is Genesis 18, bargaining with God down. Well, what if there's only uh, 20 people, 10 people, whatever? Uh, but he, had, he, he would say, who am I but dust and ashes to talk to God in this way? But what if... You know, so he, he was, had this amazing sense of, I'm small, I could get wiped out, I could get smeared out on the ground for talking this way to God, but I know this God. He's my friend, and so I'll try again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lower, lower the ante yet again. Um, too much judgment. Jeremiah had the opposite difficulty with God, the opposite protest. Uh, nowhere near enough judgment. Uh, why does the way of the guilty, guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Uh, this is, you, know, you, don't, you don't do enough judging and punishing God. You, you don't know how to run your railroad. Or David, oh God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but find no rest. Habakkuk, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you do not save? You know, you have very real freedom in taking these things to God. And I think something like a, a, a third of the Psalms have, aren't necessarily lament psalms, but have lament in them. Uh, these complaints are made to the creator of the universe who holds our breath and every beat of our heart in his hand. These grievances, uh, uh, the, the, these grievances are, 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 are trusted that God is praiseworthy, that his moral character could be appealed to. Uh, their perspective is that his character is, is there in the covenant. We have the covenant in one hand. God, what are you doing? What are you doing living out the covenant that you've entered into with us? Basically, God welcomes these protests, laments, grievances, and interacts with them, and never rebukes them, except on places where they really need rebuking, like with the with, for example, after coming after coming through the Exodus, the sea, having miracle after miracle, they still want to go back to Egypt because we don't have melons and and leeks to eat here in the desert. Uh, God gets finally fed up with with, with those grievances uh, in the desert uh, of, of total unfaith and forgetfulness about what God had been doing. Um, but they said things that if you said them to a modern dictator, you would be shot, poisoned, or disappear. Uh, but they said them to God Himself. And God publishes them in his book. He has his prophets write them up, and they're in the Bible. Uh, He lets human grievances against God be part of what helps us all learn to live in this broken world. What a difference. So the God who is our creator and redeemer is not the least fearful about protecting his dignity in the opinions of men and women in the 21st century. He has no interest in their flattery, but he is concerned that they would have humility to be able to receive life and salvation 
through recognizing and knowing him, who he is, and recognizing and knowing themselves, who they are, that they would know him through Christ. That embracing of what is true is what enables us to be able to see him as worthy of praise. To not have to be told, but to see what he is, who he's done, and be filled with praise and recognition of, of what we've, what we've uh, looked at and what we've, what we've thought about. So God can tell you to praise him because he knows he is worthy of your praise. He knows that insofar as you are humble before him, you will see that he is worthy uh, of, of praise. The question is really, do we have the humility to see it? I will end there and throw it open for you, over to you. And uh, in a lecture like this, we stir up all sorts of possible issues all over the place. So any place you'd like to take it, um, go ahead. I should say again, um, our, our, our discussions go on for quite a while. If you have to leave, do feel totally um, okay leaving because um, some people were, are likely to want to stay longer than you do. But that's the way our Friday nights always go. So, so don't feel badly about getting up, climbing over other people and getting out of here. Yes, anyone ever? Want to start something? <coughs> I may get yes. I think I have a have thought about um, yeah about the title question. It, it feels you know why would God require praise? It feels like it um, kind of implicitly asks a companion question like how how can humans imagine they aren't worshippers? Or um, how, like, how can a human not praise? You know, like, I think you're, like, you're, you're making this argument like there's something that's hardwired in us that that looks to delight and, like, yeah. raise things up. And so, um, yeah, I guess I'm just thinking, like, it's a really important piece of the response that like we we recalibrate <laughs> ourselves and our understanding of our humanity as worshiping like it's a yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of um, David Foster Wallace's commencement speech yeah. that I think was quite famous at least for some time you know where he says you know everybody worships you can't get away from it the only thing you get to choose is what you worship yeah. and um so, yeah, I just, I, I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, it, that. it, um, I, there are all sorts of things that I, uh, didn't talk about for fear of time. Mm-hmm. And distinction between praise and worship mm-hmm. would be, was one of them. Uh, because no one would argue with being, uh, the, against being praisers. Everyone's willing to admit that they praise things. Worship is a word that, people would don't want to own or a lot of people don't want to own because it has a religious connotation. What you suggested is that that's very arbitrary well it depends how you understand religion I, I did a bunch of lectures on religion and violence and tried to define religion functionally which means pro football is a religious act, activity to some people um, there was a Super Bowl, the Patriots won I think in Boston where one of the sports bars in Boston the other way on the field the players pile on top of each other when they win the game. They piled on top of each other on the barroom floor. 
uh, made of the spilled beer and the sawdust in Boston when the Patriots won the Super Bowl. You know, we, you know, don't tell me that's not religious. <laughs> to pile up on a barroom bar floor in Boston, uh, it's, there's got to be some religious cause for that. <laughs> but but um, the, 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 the thing that needs to be distinguished is what is the object of this worship, uh, and what I, another thing I would have liked to have done, which would have gotten us till here till midnight, is is uh, is to say that as you separate your praise from the true God, you have it. It ends up landing on something that is becoming an idol. Uh, it's becoming uh, something that will destroy you, which will demand more of you than you've got to give, and will destroy you. Uh, even I mean, people will often point to. Paul in Acts 17 in Athens, where even with uh, there's no God, they still worship it. You know, and that's where Paul starts his sermon uh, to, to, to the Athenians, uh, is a God that they know nothing about, but they still worship it. There's an altar there for him. Uh, and so it, it, we need to, re, to, to do a, a job on what you're calling for. I think we need to really reconstruct our, uh, the doctrine of idolatry. And, and make that more believable um, and, and, uh, and describe it more throughout the world, which, it's, which I think is, is called for because the most comprehensive category in the Bible of unbelief is idolatry. If you're not worshiping the true God, you're worshiping something God made, which is making a, a, a God out of the created world somehow. Uh, and I, I think there's a great deal of room for uh, expanding our notion of religion, many people would say there's no such thing as the secular, as the secular culture. No, it's just we've shifted our our, our objects of worship. Um, yeah, but, but there's a lot of explanation. People don't like the idea of worship to to refer to their secular ultimate commitment to things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you? Have... I'm just going to say that one of the things that struck me in regards to we we are. Praise is something that just comes out of us naturally when we see something that's worthy of praise. But the Bible talks about the fact that we are spiritually blind. So we don't see God for who he is. Yeah. Um, you know, I was listening to the, the title of this of the talk for next week and use the phrase in the shadow of the fall. <clears throat> two weeks down. And two weeks away. Two weeks yeah. down. Okay. Yeah. And that, that is an accurate title, but it's almost the rubble of the fall. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we underestimate exactly how bad things are and how twisted things are. And I know people have talked about, you know, God's kingdom on earth is the upside-down kingdom because it's so different and other than what we experience. But it's really not upside-down kingdom. The kingdom is right-side-up. It's this reality that mm-hmm. we see that's upside-down. And... When we get glimpses of God in heaven, we're actually getting a glimpse of the real reality. And the thing is, is that the idea about God requiring praise is interesting because it's not going to be required of us when we when we get to heaven. It's just we're going to see God for who he is without the blinders, and it's going to come naturally. But God does require it of us here. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it was interesting that you used the term tone deafness because... Um, when God requires us to praise Him, I don't know about anybody else, but it calls me up short because I'm like, okay, you know, I am so caught up and distracted by what I see around me as opposed to the reality of God 
that it forces me to have to go back and go, okay, why is God praiseworthy? Why? Yeah. why and, it, and it forces me to shift my thinking from what I see around me to what the Bible says is the real reality and who God really is. And when you do that, then it comes naturally. Yeah. But it's interesting, God does require it of us in our fallen world because it doesn't come naturally the way it will later, but it forces us to think about What's really real. And we need all sorts of things in our daily discipline and weekly discipline to, to keep us there. Uh, all sorts of things that would seem unnatural to us or whatever. We need to read the Bible pretty regularly, whatever. We need to go and meet together with other people who together we can worship, we can lift up praise to God and, and help us and keep us on track and challenge us, uh, help us to find out the things that distract us and, and things that keep us uh, really, really valuing. Um, who, who God is. Another whole thing I didn't get into, <laughs> there's three or four lectures I didn't do tonight, is what is what has become of worship today. See, worship is, is, is different today than it was in the Bible or than it was 200 years ago. Uh, worship is me finding a way to express myself into something greater and that's pleasing to me. That Expressive individualism is found. The, the, the phrase that's so much to, used to describe people today uh, is, is the way, uh, worship is the way I do that now. What business does God have of commanding me to do that? This is my own uh, reaching out my, for my inner self to, to uh, embrace something that's important to me. Who is he to tell me what to do uh, with my with my worshiping muscles or whatever. Uh, and so the idea of God requiring worship is, is, is difficult for the Christian because for the reasons you've just said, because we have so much distraction and we're, we're uh, broken uh, clay anyway. Uh, but uh, what has become of worship in the, in the, in the culture far and wide is, is miles from being able to, be, to, to take the, the command to worship and to praise God as anything but a, a violation of my freedom, a violation of my private property, uh, my private life, uh, because it's so it's so um, self-oriented. The idea of worship is so built around itself. So much of our uh, worship music is is feeding just self, self, self. I did this, and God helped me. And this, and the other. just nothing more than than, than uh, yeah, it, than my emotional response to it. So that's another. Thing I didn't dare get into tonight, but that's that's that makes it more difficult because we're part of a culture that has an influ- that has an influence on us too. Yeah, any other things we'd like to? Those are good things. We we have a. I mean, we really need to go to church. Uh, church ought to be a place where where it's designed to help us to worship, to help us to praise God, to help us to see how sensible it is, how how. Uh, Foolish it is to not uh, worship God and to do it together and to help one another to do it. Um, that's just a, just a really important uh, piece of the puzzle because to do this alone is we're really missing a lot. Yeah, any other? Yes, Ben. Is there a way in which, um, given that God is, has always been and didn't need to create people, and um, and yet did, and the universe, and everything else. Uh, is there a way in which our praise changes God in any way? Because so much of what we've been talking about is like, you're praising God, which is good and appropriate, because he's actually worthy of that praise. Mm-hmm. 
and yet it's we, it's easy to get into sort of a rut of talking about it. Is this what we need to do for our to, to bring us humility, to bring us close? You know, yeah. it's it's but it seems incomplete to say that praise of God is primarily for us. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe analogous to prayer, kind of like some people. Well, I know that in, in, in some conversations on the more sort of hyper-Calvinist side of the, of the spectrum, it's like your prayers, you know, God's already going to do what he's going to do. Your prayers aren't changing God's mind in any way, but they're, but you need to do it. It's good for you spiritually yeah. to humble yourself. And, and um, you become closer to God through it. And, and, uh, I'm just, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but... but um, <coughs> Maybe the question is sort of what does our praise do for God? In a sense? Yeah, I think it says. I think I think it says He is pleased. It pleases yeah. God. Yeah. We can please God. Wonder of wonders. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's imagine being able to being able to please God. It is uh, a difference though between pleasing God and God needing anything. Right. That's true. Right now, yeah. But clearly, that's something that He. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, and and that's not. Uh, um, Inappropriate at all, that, and that ought to be uh, enough for us. Um, and, and he's he's uh, we can disappoint him too. You know, we we know we can disappoint the Holy Spirit. We him. Yeah, that's right. Sad. Sad. Which uh, I, I was very very suspicious of people who say God is beyond emotions. He's so great. Impassibility of God. I'm, uh, I'm very shaky with that. We, we, given what it says about God's, uh, well, the emotions that it describes to God in the in the Bible itself, um, anger, um, grief. Uh, yeah, did you have some more? Well, I'm just thinking that I think it can it can help the fact that so much of the language about God. Is, um, is personal language and relational, like father to his children or husband to his wife, that that's meant to help us, I think, um, understand something of how God would respond, if, whether we praise him or don't praise him. I and mean, if you think of a child, uh, parents who love their children, it, it's, it's um, when their children thank them or show gratefulness <laughs> For what the parent has done to the child, that that's really helps the parent. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the parent is pleased. It's not. Um, it's there's a two way street. It's not that it helps the parent. No, the parent is so very pleased. Very pleased <coughs> when they experience an outpouring yeah. of yep. love or thanks. Exactly. The parent. It's not that the parent needed it. It's that they are immensely pleased. Yeah. Well, and we're made in yeah. God's image, and I think it's all tied in there. If you're yeah, pleased because it's nice to be, it's just a wonderful thing to be thanked, mm-hmm. but if you're pleased also because of what you recognize it means for your ch- your child, that's like, oh, that's they're right. becoming a kind of person that recognizes when things are done for them. Yeah, It's a sign of their character growing. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a sign of growth. That's as much of a pleasure as, as exactly. being thanked. It's like, oh, I didn't just I didn't tell them to say thank you, just then they did. That's yeah. Without specific instruction. (laughs) It's it's like Proverbs talks so much about that. The the joy that a parent has when when their child 
it, it's godly when their child is doing good things, is doing the right things, that it, it gives great joy. And so I think the idea that the idea that we can give joy to God. Yeah. It's kind of, it kind of blows your way. It's kind of crazy, mm-hmm. but yep. we can give actually pleasure and joy to God. Even I mean, you think of the main, one of those amazing verses in the whole Bible to me is that, that, that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. The cross. Uh, the worst thing that he ever, anyone could ever go through, for the joy that was set before him, he's going to experience, has experienced joy as a result of having gone to the cross, and and which was the only thing he had to gain that he didn't have already, was us, was redeeming crazy people um, who were who were uh, sinners and dragging their feet and stubborn and all this. Um, so it's amazing to to think of that. That's hard to imagine to me. That the joy that was set before him. Anyway, <laughs> crazy. Yes. Yeah, so anyway. Sorry. Yes. Uh, it's not kind of like a general question, but I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you think the role of the, the church community is in praise and like corporate praise, because a lot of times the discussion I think centers around things that can very individualized and you can mistakenly think that I guess like praise is only individual part. Yeah. That's very good. I think though that's a it's a hard I wanna say well I will I'm I'm glad there are different kinds of churches because I think what helps one person praise God is different from what helps another person praise God. I'm glad there's a choice of different churches we can where we can find a church that really helps us and calls forth, uh, say, a very, for many people are only going to be happy in a really a very charismatic church, for example. Other people will be horrendously unhappy in a charismatic church. Uh, and that's okay. There's, there's something much more high church or something like that. But, but uh, it's wonderful that there are different whole ways pastors, priests, so on, will will arrange worship. And, and, and I think, though, that more pastors ought to be more aware of they're meant to be leading people in doing worship and helping them do worship. This is where I think some more liturgically oriented churches are doing that with the liturgy. The liturgy, if it's a good liturgy, is, is doing that uh, and is extremely helpful, um, or it is for me anyway. Um, and and uh, I, we we happen to go to an African American church where there's there's no written liturgy at all, the, but the pastor has an amazing consciousness of leading this group of people in worshiping God from the first word he says at the beginning of the service. Uh, it is oriented toward helping you worship God uh, in a way that I can't really describe more than just to say, because it happens in so many different ways. But he said, whatever he does, it's all a piece. of, And each hymn is introduced with something that leads you into it, or each uh, element of worship, uh, which helps you get it straight, get oriented. What are we doing here? What am I doing here? We can easily go to church and be just, just as distracted, as you said, that <laughs> we have the rest of the week, and be just as distracted, or more so, in church as we are uh, shopping in the shopping mall. Um, but so we we were, we were 
I think the assumption is that we're lousy worshipers, okay? I think we have to start with that. We need a lot of help uh, to get ourselves. And we need, may need a certain kind of help at some time in our lives, a certain time, kind of help other times. For, for me, uh, the service being beautiful and music being well done is a great help somehow. Uh, it would be hopelessly elitist and snobby to, to say, oh, I can't worship in a church where the, the, the music is, is, is below par. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that because I've worshipped plenty. In where, but it does help me nonetheless where the music is. Not, not, not flawless, but, but because sometimes that gets, gets to be uh, dry almost. To, uh, but but uh, it is really well done by people who are, who are really um, worshipping too as they do it. Uh, but, I, but it's good that there are different styles of worship. It's good that there's different ways of approaching it because we we, we need different different angles. Uh, but it ought to be going to church. We ought to be aware of that happening. We ought to be aware of being helped to orient ourselves to. We're here because there's a God there. There's a living God, uh, and I'm bowing before Him, and I'm hearing His word, and I'm sharing time and space with other people, lifting up His uh, His truth and praise. Um, and I'm instructed. I'm instructed by preaching, which is, which helps me, which challenges my distractions, which challenges my sins, challenges my self-deceptions. Uh, doesn't let me off easily, uh, but but pushes me forward. Um, all that uh, we need. Um, I, who's the guy? Oh, the the atheist philosopher who wrote this very humorous book. What, what's the guy's name, Ben? The other, the um, religion for how is it really? He's a Swiss guy, been living in London. Started out a, a secular religion. Who am I? Oh, uh, Alain de That's right, oh, yeah. Alain de Botton. That's right. But he he's you know uh, religion, not religion, but we'll meet uh, every every week in a place, uh, and everybody needs at least uh, one hour a week. A, at least a half hour lecture on how to be moral, you know. And, and we no God. We we sing and we do do various things and we we celebrate culture and the arts and so forth. Uh, but it's amazing he does everything to totally mimic a Christian worship service. Say so you need everybody needs at least half an hour, three quarters of an hour a week of moral instruction. You know, <laughs> I can't imagine anything more deadly than just moral instruction for three quarters of an hour. But but but. but uh, uh, it, it's intriguing that he's that he's uh, the, the, the sort of angle that he takes. But he, he's very humorous, and uh, I, I, I'm sure the whole. I'm not sure, but I think the whole thing has collapsed. But he's, he made high publicity out of this for a while, he's trying to start these groups all over the world. Uh, yeah, Marnie. Well, I, I'm just I'm just glad that. What's your name? Sloan. Sloan. Um, Raise what you did because I think. Um, I can't give a lot, lot. I can't give examples off the top of my head, but I know there, there, there's, there's so much in the New Testament that we we read individualistically, but in fact, um, the Greek, the original language, is plural. I mean, it's talking about corporate worship, corporate praise, corporate. You know that that God is there in the presence of the praises of His people, and. It's, it's very corporate, and so. What are the what are the 
clearest things of that is how often the, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet, another sword of the word of God. Uh, endless Sunday school classes on how we, we have an armor, we put on the armor of, of, a, uh, of this person. Uh, it's all in the plural. It's not an individual soldier at all. It's it's that it's it's oriented to the church. It's oriented to the, the, the body of Christ. Um, is meant to be putting these things on, which ought to sh- ch- change the way we envisage that passage. Um, and the promises are given, and the commands are given to do you know do something really quite different, um, uh, very different, really. Uh, but that's worth. Unfortunately, English doesn't lend itself very well to unpacking the singular and plural of all sorts of uh, forms of. Um, verb forms and so on. But, uh, yeah. Anyone else speak to that? Because that's a very good question. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yes? I have a kind of a similar question about it, but I think it makes sense to me that we're, you know, created to worship and the church, in church we worship. And so I was kind of curious about what you're talking about, the different forms of worship that resonate with us. And I guess, like, I've had different churches I've been a part of where they worship in a way I worship and I resonate, and I've been a part of churches that are the opposite. But I almost wonder if that's been good in terms of, like, drawing me to worship in a way I won't on my own. So I was curious in terms of, like, I'm about to move, so I'm think, thinking and praying about, like, what does it mean to find a church yeah. home in a place I don't have any connections? Yeah. So in that sense, is it something that I should maybe pray into finding a church where I resonate with, worshiping and like, share that with believers, or maybe worship in a way that I don't on my own because I need the church to help me worship in that way? I think that's an excellent uh, thing to put in the pot and stir you know, there's no one, one thing. Like ideally, it's both, but I feel like a lot of times it hasn't been. Yeah, <laughs> no, because I think very often that, that it's it's very helpful to be to get something that isn't just what you what you connect with, and that 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 isn't the only reason to cho- choose a church. Certainly, if the worship service is is something you can resonate with, because uh, I think oftentimes we should choose a church because. There's a place for us to serve there, which may be uh, much more significant than another church where I sit in big churches, uh, most of the very large churches. It's very easy to be very comfortable and, and sit in the seat and go out and never get involved with anything, never be really challenged personally to be part of the body of Christ in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, so I, I lean in toward smaller churches, not too too small, but you get a church more than sort of four or five hundred people. There, there are going to be a lot of people uh, uh, lost in the fray, uh, just not, and and whose gifts aren't challenged. So that's another. I don't want to get into the whole thing of how to find a church, but but I think you're right that we may need the fray thing, and it isn't. It certainly isn't that. You know, I mean, just look around to something that makes me comfortable. Then it becomes a real. I think we have to avoid the idea uh, of. That it's part of a, the, the sort of the consumer world, uh, and and it's like consuming, you know, toothpaste or something like this. We find one that works for us, and we go that follow that, which is just a huge insult. It needs to be a very deep decision with, with all sorts of different variables. I think we take into the, into consideration on it, uh, but I think a, a certain discomfort with it may mean that we're cha- being challenged by it, um, and so. But, but very often, it's. I, I find it's. People may not um, consider there's a 
there's a place for me to be challenged here, to really get engaged in what the body of Christ is doing here and, and, and engage with it uh, rather than what I can get out of it. If it's just what I can get out of it on a Sunday, then it's, we may be starting on the wrong foot. But um, happy moving. <laughs> and, and well, that's, I'll put in another two cents. Uh, I think so often, and this is the curse of a, of a highly mobile society, uh, the people are always, the, the, the economy gets first choice of particularly the, the most gifted people uh, in, the, in the secular sense of the work world. Uh, they're jerked all over the place. We've had a lot of friends when we lived here in Southboro. Uh, most of them, we had friends from our kids being in school here, uh, the parents of the, of the kids in school, uh, and they almost never stuck around for more than three years. They were off to Hong Kong, Paris, whatever, San Francisco. Uh, and, and I just began to think, what does this do to the church? Uh, the church gets the last choice. I mean, the, the, how, how if you move every three or four years, many churches you won't even get to be known by the people in the church, let alone how, to, how you can really serve, how you can fit in. Uh, and it, it's uh, so so many people will move for work, which is totally necessary and understandable a lot of the time, but get where they're going and say, ah. Oh, Ridiculous. There's no good churches anywhere around here. But they discover that after moving there already, you know, buying a house, da-da-da-da, uh, as opposed to um, seeing the availability of church, churches, whatever, as an important part of, do I move to this place? Uh, but, but sort of insulted that, that just, ah, churches, modern churches in terrible shape. No churches within even 20 miles of me. Uh, well, in New England, it's amazing to have a church within. Well, it's less amazing now than it used to be. But, but uh, if you have a good church within 50 miles, you're really doing well, or, or it used to be that way. Uh, but but um, uh, anyway, that's that's a, there's a lot of a lot of things to consider there. I think. I know it's actually funny. My um, church in Denver, the elders commit to 30 years at the church, but most of them just stay for life. And I get an email like once a year that's like, you should come back. And it's very... <laughs> really? It's like, uh, Good for them. Yeah. And yeah. I, so I've been actually thinking about it, so it's helpful that you brought it up again. I think it's something to be frank about. Well, mobility is a huge subtraction from the church. And we're not... We should accept it. It's a given. Which, to some degree, it is. But not as much as it is a given in, in people's attitudes. Yeah. You know, it, I just... Do I get a better job here? Well... What? I don't even have a decision to make. I've got to go to a better job. Um, and that, that's really, uh, I think, uh, no wonder the church gets uh, gets shortchanged. But some denominations actually insist that their pastors stay only a very short time, which is crazy. Yeah, well, that's, that's a circuit rider kind of thing. Yeah. I, I'm not sh- They have a special rationale for that, which is strange. I don't know quite how it works. Yeah. But I, I was going to say that, you know, in terms of the different kinds of churches and worship, it's been really interesting for us being part <clears throat> part of a black church for 30 years now or something, and being minority members of a black church. Um, it's been it's been extremely helpful for us because of just um, worshiping in a different way, experiencing worship 
different kind of worship than what, well, I mean, neither of us grew up as Christians at all. And then we've been to different, when we became Christians, you know, have been in different churches, but have learned so much from a, from a, a different, different cultural experience. And there's people whose um, way of worship is different from ours. And, but That's what drew us to the church, really. These folks know something about worship that we don't know. But, but it's also been been really helpful for some of our students who kind of just been burned by churches or were just just experienced churches dead, and you know we're really discouraged with church and given up on it. Just to go to to come to a church with a very different kind of um, music and and worship and the stories of people and the metaphors that are there and things that um, you know there are things that have really made a difference to us. Like, just, I'll just give one example, which I'm sure this may be a cliche for some of the people in our church, but for us, because it was new, it's not a cliche at all. But a prayer that is frequently prayed in our church is, thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning. You didn't have to wake me up this morning. You didn't promise me today. You didn't promise me this week. But uh, I was in the very, in the very um, posture of death you know, for the last nine hours, and you woke me up. And now, I'm sure there are people in our church who've grown up with that kind of prayer, and, and, and think things like that can become cliches. They can become the way they can, you know, any church has its <laughs> phrases that can become a cliche. But for us, it's not a cliche at all. It's just been, it, it's just made it, it's very, it's very real, I think. It's exactly what James says. You know, when you make your plans, don't say, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this. Say, if I wake up tomorrow morning, Lord, I will go here, I will go there. So it's okay to make plans, but it's meant to be, plans are meant to be made with that humility that God hasn't promised me tomorrow. And since we've been at that church, we we know a couple people who didn't wake up. You know, one of our most wonderful friends, whose wife is now a widow because he didn't wake up one morning. And... It's just, you know, that, I, I mean, I, when you go to a church that's different, or a, a different tradition what you're used to, things like that can be really helpful to your own sense of the reality of the faith. Yeah. Sarah, did you? Yeah. yeah I, <clears throat> the fact that you titled your lecture with a question, so it's good. The question is doing its work. Why we've got required praise and... <clears throat> think the uh, verses in John that you included about Jesus being glorified um, is turning in my mind now too and I'm wondering if part of the reason that God requires praise is because it's a way that he ties people up in his own self-revelation to the world and like it's it's part of his mysterious plan for the church. <laughs> Why the church, God? Why not just, as soon as someone comes to realize who you are, sort of a beam me up, Scotty approach to things? Like, God God didn't choose that way. Like, God chooses to have people acknowledging who he is for witness to yeah. others in some way. And I guess I'm thinking of, like, the... Like how helpful it is to have someone who knows something about something enjoy it in front of you, <laughs> and like how instructive that is. Like, oh, 
that's what I'm tasting. Or, oh, you hear that? Like, it's a correction to the tone deck. It's, you know, yeah. oh, I'm learning how to hear what you hear or see what you see. And yeah. I guess I'm wondering if, like, God requires praise of us so that other people see him. Clearly. Definitely, that our praise, our praise is part of our witness, and I, I think where where it starts, and I, I don't know if I, I tried to get that into this talk, but the real reason praise in the sight of God, our praise is totally a function of us getting a grip on what is true, seeing what is actually the case, seeing who He is, who we are, what He's done, what our need is, what, and it's it's totally it's not just he wants us, he wants the sound of our voices to praise him or something like that. it's that he wants people to really grasp and get a hold at a deep deep level the truth of who we are and who God is and and, uh, and that is what he's and, and that will be praise that will result in praise uh, praise is sort of the byproduct I think of a grasp of the truth that is in our uh, in our soul um, so that becomes the center and and uh, uh, and then what? When we do praise, it, it can be hugely important to other people. I mean, that in, in church, that church is doing it together, and, and what we contribute to each other, and the and and always we'll have somewhat different insights from each other, and there'll be all sorts of ways that we can help each other because of the differences between us, the difference of things we've uh, learned, or thought about, or have gone through and suffered, and so forth, which is really. Uh, Really valuable, I think. Yeah, Ben, did you have something? Yeah, I just really like that idea, that, that comment. Um, it's helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, I think just going back to some of the the um, comments raised about worship and church and music and all these things, I think it's a real uh, cause to, to pray for and be gracious to music pastors. Um, <laughs> Because they, they witness, in a different way than most everybody else in the church, they witness the consumeristic <coughs> attitude of the congregation in a way that very few other people do, in terms of the complaints they receive. And You're speaking with feeling. <laughs> speaking with feeling. Uh, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of church musicians. Um, and... Yeah, just receiving week after week petty complaints, um, where all it really reveals is that they are expecting a product that they didn't get. They're expecting a product that's supposed to help me have an experience. I didn't get it, and you're the one that's responsible for delivering the product. Um, and that, this is a little bit cynical, but it is. But there's an element of that in a lot of behind a lot of complaining. Yeah. Um, which does not view praise as something that you are required to do, regardless of what else is going on around you in church. Um, it's, it's something the church is supposed to put on for me, and I'm supposed to bask in the light of it. And it's just, it's really tough. Like, I, like I, it's hard not to get cynical. Um, I'm not, I don't, Lead worship at my church regularly anymore, and I'm not in charge, so I don't get the, I don't get complaints anymore, which is really nice. But I, I do. <laughs> but but it, it happens uh, for people who are who Sunday after Sunday after Sunday work really hard to, to 
to try to help the congregation worship, right? And so it's, it's uh, I think it's really worth, you know, whenever we're, and, and there's, there's obviously, this, it's not that it's always wrong to offer constructive criticism, of course not, it, but, it, but it is worth checking ourselves when we don't like something about church. Checking yourself and ask you, are you, are you are, am I... Am I experiencing this because I felt entitled to something that that God never promised me, uh, or is it something really that I should raise out of a desire for the edification of the whole church? You know, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I would I would have to add I'd have to add that uh, I'd want to add that pastors are not spared no, same problem. No, no. <laughs> Absolutely, but music music is, is such a part of someone's worship experience. Yeah. You know, it just strikes very close to home. And they might feel freer to nail the church musician than the pastor. Absolutely, because you're just criticizing a musician. <laughs> That's like, you're not criticizing someone with an MDM necessarily. Uh, yes, I was just going to say that I think anytime God gives us a gift, Satan wants to twist it. And and what I think that that represents for a lot of people is it's just very easy, again, like we talked about with worship, it goes from being about God to being about us. Yeah. And, and that can be reflective. And one thing I just wanted to comment on, uh, the, the title of your talk really grabbed me because I really struggled when I was a younger believer about this whole question and just what appeared to be the arrogance of God mm-hmm. that, you know, he allows all this stuff to go on in the world all because it's designed to glorify him and and it just was a lack of understanding the, the real reality and that verse in Philippians where it talks about Jesus humbled himself and and that I didn't understand that fully but a couple of things on on top of that um, one of the things is that uh, you know, we were talking the other day when Jesus set aside his glory and took on human flesh. He took on human flesh for eternity. Like, for eternity forward. Like, it says in Revelation, he appeared as a lamb who had been slain. Like, he, when he was resurrected, he still had nail holes in his hands. He, he, he humbled himself not just to come here for a little while and go back to heaven and become exactly what he was before. He actually became human for eternity forward, which is mind-boggling. I mean, it's mind-boggling that he came in the first place, but it's mind-boggling still. But, but the other thing is is that it, it, it dawned on me as I've gotten older and, and how much my, I failed and my witness is horrible and, um, at times. And, and the fact that God is more concerned about our hearts than his reputation shows that he it is an ongoing humility, it is an ongoing servant God that we worship, that he will let his reputation just take hits in front of non-believers when he deserves glory because because he lets us fall and he lets us make mistakes and then he gives us grace and and redeems us and and so understanding that humility from God and that's what he asks from us. Like one of the other things that's just struck me last year or so is just that God doesn't call us to be humble. He calls us to humble ourselves, which means that on an ongoing basis, it's an act that we can choose to do. And, it, and it's and it's a different thing than, than assuming that we've arrived or 
somebody's ever arrived because of our sinful nature. We're never going to arrive in this life, but we always have the choice to humble our hearts and humble ourselves before God. And, <clears throat> excuse me, in light of all these different things that we're talking about, especially with worship, that attitude of our heart is like the fundamental thing that you then move out from in terms of thinking about churches and worship and all these different things. But, uh, that was just a big lesson for me because I really struggled when I was younger with the whole that whole question. So I thought it was just really great the way that you phrased it. And I thought it was really cool. With the last point you have is the humility of God. That's that's we can't get anywhere without it, <laughs> and and uh, which is hard because you <clears throat> because of what humility is, we can't very well approach it directly. Uh, it's, uh, it has to be a byproduct, uh, otherwise we'll be keeping score. Uh, and and uh, uh, we need to. I think what is helpful is to live for what is true, rather than live to try and be more humble. Uh, and, and Lewis, what is it? There's a great line from Lewis that. Yeah. Uh, it's not that we should think less of ourselves, we should think of ourselves at all. Yeah, or think, think of ourselves less. Uh, but not think, less of self-forgetfulness. Yeah. But, but you can tell a humble person not because they put themselves down all the time, but because they're interested in you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that's, that's the indirectness. Uh, because uh, I can remember a time where I, I've often told this, but uh, a friend of mine... Uh, became a Christian amazingly, wonderfully then described himself as uh, he's, he's changed a lot I used to be conceited now I'm not conceited anymore <laughs> and, and I thought please, come on <laughs> you got to be this is, this is you, you're, you can't have said this but you just did and I thought where am I standing when I said that? I'm standing on a pillar of higher humility than he had <laughs> no of superior humility. Great for me. You know, whoopee-doo. And I thought, I give up. I thought, this is, this is a, it's too, humility is so much dealing with the, with the, 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 the pride that is the essence of our, uh, of our problem. That, that to try and attack it directly, we're liable to think we've succeeded. And then, then where are we? <laughs> no. So, so, anyway. Esther, you've had something Mm. Um, and I think where is that just about do, oh, never mind that's okay I'm I'm really best references. <laughs> yeah that's alright don't, don't, don't let me stop you <laughs> yeah and I think I think I don't know maybe that kind of connects what, what Sarah was saying about you know that the witness that phrase is yeah. and the corporate witness that is, is that that, that sh- somehow shows the reality of God's enthronement over as king of the universe mm-hmm. he is yeah, I don't know. It just brought those two things together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great, isn't it? I mean, I think of times when someone who is able to praise God in their suffering, which is enormously worse than what I'm, what I'm suffering at the moment, but praising God much more than I'm praising God, 
um, that has a real effect. That really is, is a, uh, a tremendous uh, just shot of what is possible. What is possible uh, if we keep really our real attention on God Himself? Uh, that's amazing. Yes. to the lecture last week we were talking about the God being selfish and that being kind of an issue and offering him praise um, and I have a friend who, who ha- has that that issue of like well you know if we're supposed to lift you know it's, it's selfish for us to ask for those things so it's like isn't it selfish for God to ask them and, um, and so some, one of the ways that I've responded to him is, is God being Trinitarian um, and he's, he's three people and he's not just one and it's not just him being Egocentrical because there's there's that personhood that's kind of in between them um, versus when it's just me I'm I'm only one person so that I think that community aspect of the Trinity is is a part of that praise and how they've been kind of in that interchange of lifting themselves up and and giving to one another for eternity um, and and I yeah it was interesting how you you moved into the, the creation aspect I had been expecting that um, and meditating on the Big Bang I think. I think, you know, meditating on that first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, like, we're not really ever going to understand what that looks like. And so, I think, th- thinking about the Big Bang, you know, and its it, its flaws and maybe things that, that God does get right, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to explore that and stretch your mind and think, like, God did something at least as crazy as this, you know, and probably something crazier. Um, and... And it was, it was curious to me that kind of like some of the, the theories about it were saying, one, like, in order for this to function, like, matter has to have had already existed and always existed. And then other people were like, no, it has to have always been expanding. And so to me, like, understanding God is all act. It's interesting to see how that, like, that's the, the challenge of understanding somebody who has positioned in time, but it doesn't. And so he's like this constantly moving being while always, like, also being unchanging. So I just thought that was kind of, like, interesting. Like, to me, it sounds like they're talking about God in, you know, some form or the other. So. Well, that's what they were all afraid of. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and and uh, the fact that the beginning uh, had a finite point in time, way beyond our ability to uh, investigate it now. Well, except for the new web telescope, where one of the main things they're looking at is, is uh, some of the old galaxies... That are that are uh, closest to to the time of the bang, uh, but I mean it's just mind-bending to think of what we're, what we uh, may be able to look at and something was happening billions of years ago. Uh, but it's it to, to me it's it's a uh, it, it's a wonderful thing that here is something that. The secular world, for all its wisdom, and, and goodness knows this, the amount of science invested in physics, which this massive discipline, uh, just doesn't have an answer. Here is there, it began somewhere. No one has a clue, unless there's a uh, something totally a totally different uh, dimension coming into it. Now you don't see that many people saying what this what's his name Eddington said, uh, what I quoted, unless it's a, a supernatural event today. But, I mean, it, it's there still. No one's come up with a, uh, a reason why any other better explanation for the start of it. 
So I love that. I mean, I think that's awesome. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Interstellar? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because they need somehow to have a solution for all of their universal like issues to make sense. And so what they do is they come up with this concept of the they. And then I'm right, I'm like, the they is God. But they can't they can't claim that, so they make they future humans. Um, so I just I think it's yeah. interesting how still when we're talking about like spatial, like universal things, like we still need something else like to explain it. Yeah, we we need to shrink it down to something we can manage that can fit inside of our system of idolatry and live with that, even though that doesn't touch the real problem that we have to answer. So. I, I have a question, just that anybody want to help me understand exactly what this person is, because I think it's related, but it's the beginning of Psalm 8, um, where it says, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it's the next verse. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your enemy, because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. Part about out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark against your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. Think of the praise of babes and infants. Um, the mouth. Does that have to do with the miracle of? The miracle of an infant in birth that it speaks in the Bible says, you know, obviously they, God reveals himself in different ways and there's a general revelation, but anyone can witness the miracle of, of birth and life and then that stands against the attack of the enemy to try and say there is no God and there is no, that's the only thing I can you know, it's hard to do is out of the mouths of means it seems to say that something they're saying. Uh, and I, I wonder if it's just connected to, you know, there are not many great people among you, but the, the sort of the, the idea that that the truth of God is folly to those who don't believe, to the wise. Uh, I don't know, I, I want to, to study the passage more. I don't, I don't really have confident sense of what it's getting at. I don't think what Jesus said, except you become as little children yeah. who can yeah. enter the kingdom yeah. of God, much less be great in it. Something about... Yeah. The, and, and there's another place where the children are praising Yeah, he's God. going into Jerusalem. Yeah. 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 And and, the, far, and the, the, the leaders are saying, tell them to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, the rocks will cry out. The rocks will cry out. But there's something so... <laughs> awesome about that, of children and infants somehow being a witness against God's enemies. <laughs> but it may be, from, from what you were saying, it may be less the, the, the literal words, but the reality of, yeah. uh, of, of children. Or even just the cry of a baby. Yeah. Yeah. There's vulnerability and that he's protecting from foes, I but then that that being a bulwark is, is, is obviously that, trying to stretch us. That's silencing uh, the enemy and the avenger. Children silencing the enemy. It's really fascinating. It's awesome. I'm looking at uh, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding mm-hmm. and revealed them to little children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so maybe that's part of the what we perceive as upside down, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's the yeah. right side yeah. of like the kingdom 
is with the yep. neediest. And the humility, humility of right. children. Now they're small and right. they're bad. Right. If, if the humility of God is praiseworthy, then the kingdom of God is that which is humble. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, yeah. They're, also, they're also the most curious, usually. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that in the context of Psalm 8, it's David talking about how uh, unbelievable it is that God who made everything that he can see in the star pays any attention to him. And so my, my sense of the psalm is that it's not the difference between a human baby and King David is not, not a whole lot really in the, grand, in the grand scheme of what God has done. Yeah. And so it's almost just like it's almost like he's ref- I wondered whether whether he just referred to all of humanity and people as babes and infants. Uh, not necessarily specifically talking about babies, but, but you know, we are, um, you know, because he's, he's wondering at, at essentially the first chapter of Genesis when you pl- you placed us above all these other things in creation and, and gave us a place of honor, even though we are a little speck, you know, yeah. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, you think of the you think of what I mean. The implication for me is that somehow, when human beings are in touch with reality and praising God, it undermines the devil. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like it is. Yeah. They're, they're, this is the very thing the devil doesn't want us to do, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and it's up to God to fight that battle. But somehow, we in our praise of God are defying Satan. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're the, the, land, the language of bulwark and fortress or whatever whatever it is in different yeah. translations it's just big tough military mm-hmm. sort of image but uh, yeah, I wonder whether that's that's the way in which we as basically babies in the universe uh, participate in a, in a spiritual battle mm-hmm. praising God mm-hmm. when it's hard to praise God praising God when it seems Unreasonable to do so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that may really count yeah. in the battle far more than we ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think related, related to that, I, I was thinking about this other passage in, in Chronicles, one, one or two, um, where Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel are under threat and they're totally, I mean, it's a way bigger army that they're in. They go out, and the first, the, the vanguard, the people in the front are singers. Like, that's who he sends out first. Um, because God said, You're not going to need to fight, I'm going to fight this battle for you. And sort of that, yeah, that's who goes out first. And it's like, You guys are going to all like play your harps or trumpets or whatever you're playing and sing. Like, we're going to send the musicians out. Yeah. yeah. Um, he wasn't just trying to get rid of the church musicians. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, that it is very much like that's how he's going to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Any other things we'd have for one of race? Yes, John. This is kind of a simple thought, but um, I just re- recommend a song for people to listen to. At home, but it's called "Reason to Praise" by Corey Asbury, and it's funny you were talking about kind of like I, I forget the way you worded it, maybe like self-centric, like I, like language and stuff. It, it might be a little in that realm, but 
I like to kind of just listen to. I like to kind of just peruse YouTube, like YouTube, and just listen to songs that I normally wouldn't do, or like that I normally wouldn't like, and discover different groups and stuff. And I came across this reason uh, recently, and in uh, going to what Esther said about being on the throne, there's a line in the song that says, "This is one thing I know: you're still on the throne. So whatever I'm feeling, I've still got a reason to praise." And I, I just love that. I love that. Yeah. You know, no no matter what season of life you're going through, like God sitting on that throne, and uh, I mean, it's uh, just kind of a powerful yeah. thing. To mm-hmm. about and, yeah. uh, Keeping a grip on that is worth a lot. <clears throat> yeah, Peter. Uh, I, I, I've been try, trying to formulate this thought, and, and maybe it's just a recapitulation of what people have been saying, but uh, I mean, why does God require praise? And I was thinking that the the alternative is impossible. You know, it, it's something that must be done because it seems that within the Godhead, and this is, I think, kind of what uh, Marguerite was getting at, is that it, it isn't as though God requires praise uh, in in the sense of a demand within the Godhead. It, it's um, it, it's that God cannot but operate with complete wholeness and complete integrity. And so it's not super added. It's sort of just what is. And uh, and, and I, I know within a Greek Orthodox theology, there's this idea of apotheosis or theosis in which the goal is to become, if you will, God-like. And I think the, the idea of praise then is just participation in that image of, of the Trinity and, uh, and and so it's sort of if it's a requirement it's a requirement of generosity and, and not one of sort of of duty or uh, the way we would often think of as requirement it, it's sort of a welcoming to participate in what has been forever. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I get nervous about some of those parts of Orthodox theology, or the way they work out. But, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is uh, you're right. It isn't a okay. Here's the boss, and he's going to make these this requirement of you, and do this, this, that, and the other thing, and come back and tell me you've done it. Uh, and that the requirement is is extrinsic to. It may he be want to, maybe you would do it, maybe there's reasons why. But there's something totally more intrinsic to this than that, that God in his authority says, I require this if you do that, you require this. Um, it's that um, I want you to know what is true about me and about yourself and to really have that in your heart, in your being. And if you do that, you will be praising me. In other words, the praise will be an in- integral, intrinsic part of the reality of faith, rightly understood. Uh, and, and so the whole Trinity is, of course, behind this. The Holy Spirit is hard at work bringing this about. Uh, and and uh, so it's... Um, that, that's, I, I, get, I don't like the idea of people talk about uh, divine command ethics. 
as being the expression of the Christian view of ethics. So it's over against the different philosophical options. Uh, Christian ethics come from God's divine commands. Well, that allows room for God to be arbitrary and just command all sorts of stuff here and there, all over the place, which is totally unlike what the Bible is teaching. Uh, His command, but it's God's, it's divine character ethics is what we're really talking about. Uh, it's, it's who God is as a, as a, as a person. And, and that's what produces the Ten Commandments and, and uh, how, we're, how we're to live. And so it's totally integral and intrinsic to who he is rather than he sits up there and he gives directions uh, and, and gives ten, ten directions, things to do, uh, as if those were, uh, as if he could have given different ones on a different day of the week, that kind of thing. Uh, and and I, so I want to tie it to God's character and to the, the, to the whole um, reality of the Trinity in, in, uh, in what the Holy Spirit is doing in terms of working within us to build this, to build this uh, uh, unity and holistic response to God, which will be praise uh, as we've uh, connected uh, with it, which, which is, I don't know, I have to always back to this and I don't always have to but I often do there's a there's a Calvin Institute's the first two sentences or first sentence uh, of the whole thing of a 1400 page book is basically um, there's two kinds of knowledge that are useful knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves and it is more than one sentence um, and this is a direct quote but he basically says in the first paragraph I can't for the life of me figure out which one precedes the other, you know, gives birth to the other, self-knowledge or God-knowledge. But he's saying the first page of this 1,400 pages, the knowledge of God and knowledge of self are just like that. And you can't pry them apart. And you, one way is the way into the other, and there's a two-way street back and forth and around and around. And, and uh, I just see this so much in Jesus' teaching. You know, so much is about you and your view of yourself and how you see yourself. And how that corresponds to who God is and where, what God is doing for you. Uh, so, so again, it's 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 all highly integrated in, into the wholeness of who we are in our response to Him in faith. There's uh, a song by Phil Kagan, and I don't know that he wrote it, but it's called "Once I Prayed," and it starts out where he says, "Once I prayed, God, you know, show me myself." So God starts to reveal His heart to him, and He's just devastated, he's blown away to the point of understanding his sinfulness before God and then he changes it and he says, changes it it's a prayer to, don't show me myself show me yourself right. and, and it is it is the two things together yeah. it, because if we don't realize our sinfulness we're not going to have any interest in God if we don't think we need to be saved who cares about a savior yeah. but at the same time if we actually understand the depth of our fallenness and how lost we are, then we're desperately going to be looking to find out who God is. Yeah, so. yeah that's right. And it's amazing how much Jesus' teaching is making the first connection with, with our view of ourselves. A lot of it. He's both back and forth a lot, but, but it's amazing how much he's connecting with your view of yourself and who do you think, who, who are you, what are you hoping in, what do you believe, and so forth. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I just just one. I mean, this is just one of the other lectures that you didn't give tonight. But um, just the the, um, the the theology of, of kind of 
creation praising God and the, and the role of human beings in creation as being the ones, because we're in his image and we're in this priestly role in the sense uh, over creation and relating to God that somehow um, human beings are responsible for for bringing out the praise of, the praise of creation or for, for almost like curating the praise of creation which which even without any human input at all praises God to a degree just by simply by being itself and yeah. it doesn't God doesn't necessarily well I don't know God doesn't require creation to praise him as in the sense that he has to require us to praise him mm-hmm. because uh we're the, we're the aspect of his, cre- of his creation that can refuse to <laughs> yeah. and, and fails to. Um, yeah. But I don't know, there's just some interesting um, work on it. Jeremy Begbie has done some, some interesting work on that in terms of the role of art making in a theology of the art of the arts that, he's, that he wrote a long time ago. Just as, as the priestly role of human beings in creation being one of trying to voice voice creation's praise um, through engaging with the physical materials of the world, through stewardship, through... Any, I mean, you could say the same about technology or anything, really. Like, we're somehow... By, by, by making things, by engaging our dominion in the world around us, we're giving voice, giving... releasing praise out of creation that was latent in creation but has not been... I don't know. It's an interesting idea, and I, I think this, I, I, you could probably take it too far. But, um, but yeah, I'm just reflecting on yeah, the difference between creation praising God and, and us praising God, and what is that? How do we relate to each other? Yeah, there's a really interesting book up there on the top shelf called General, Re- General Revelation. Mm-hmm. I may have tried it. forced that on you before. It's, it's, it's a very good. But, but what you're dealing with is general revelation. What is how does nonverbal reality, the natural world, including ourselves, mm-hmm. as part of that, how does that witness to the, to the truth of God, and how is how are we meant to deal with it? And uh, it's it's key in terms of trying to um, help someone who isn't a Christian see the reality of the Christian truth. Uh, uh, Good think of Paul and Lystra, where he's you know people. He, he talks to them about God who sends the rain. He, it's an, mm-hmm. Athens is an, it's an academic community. Lystra, it's a farming community. Mm-hmm. He talks Athens. He talks about the, what the philosophers have thought uh, and the unknown God. Uh, but but um, in Lystra, it's about God because He loves you, uh, sends rain and, and, and so on and sun so to warm you and to, to help your crops grow and so forth. And, and uh, that's totally. Uh, they, he's he's remaking their theology even in that much because they the, the forces of nature, the forces of fertility, are what they worship. Mm-hmm. He's saying there's a God who's, who gives you uh, these things because He loves you, mm-hmm. uh, and so he, they, he's way overshooting their their nature worship, their fertility worship, uh, by saying. There's a God there who loves you, who's given you these things that you've been worshiping, because they're His gifts to you, uh, and uh, uh, makes some sort of connection uh, with them through that, uh, till the neighbors come along and then they beat them up. 
<laughs> but it's, it's, it's uh, I think there's all sorts of ways we need to be sensitive to that um, in the actual animal world at least um, Christians had before before Darwin had a lot more to talk about with that sort of swallows the whole of uh, macroevolution uh, there's no wonder anymore we know we can explain how everything happened and all how animals are uh, because of simply natural selection. Before that, it was, we, Christians invested much too much weight in that as a, the biological argument. It was one of the main arguments in the early 19th century where, non, where Christians would use with non-Christians. This is the thing they can't answer. It. How, how did we come up with biodiversity? Uh, Darwin showed up and then, poof, that argument disappeared. And Christians were left. Wait a minute, what, what did we turn? Um, and and uh, even if they didn't believe in Darwin, then we wouldn't wouldn't uh, change the fact that the non-Christians did. Mm-hmm. But, but um, that's a big challenge for us, I think. That's where, in a way, the Big Bang is is, is still unexplained. Mm-hmm. There's no Dar- Darwin equivalent that's come along to, to figure out a simple uh, uh, answer to the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm surprised that there's not more is made. A lot of Christians have written on it, but, but uh, that's, a, that's an interesting... Yeah, any other things, or should we? Yes. Just, just one final thought, right? at least from me, we've got to go here in a minute. Um, just in terms of praise, you know, the comment was made before about that God enjoys our praise. And somebody made a comment before about why God doesn't just, when we become a believer, you know, just zap us out of here. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is just the fact that while we're here, like when we when we get to heaven, there'll be no more sin, which is going to be an amazing thing. But while we're here, which is a very brief little tiny amount of time compared to eternity, we have the opportunity to choose to praise God in the face of sin, in the face of Satan, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and, and in terms of God enjoying our praise, do we really look at it from the standpoint of every day that God wakes me up, I have an opportunity to praise Him in a way that I won't for the rest of eternity? Mm-hmm. And it just it really struck me yeah. kind of as a eye-opening thing in terms of really being proactive about how you look at life as opposed to mm-hmm. kind of just persevering. It's mm-hmm. like because of the making of that choice. Because yeah, by but, yeah, by, by having the, the ability to choose, mm-hmm. um, I mean it'll be great when we get to heaven. And we won't, the choice won't be there because sin won't be there. Mm-hmm. It will just be the outflowing of what we experience of God. Mm-hmm. But here, with the distractions and with the all the stuff that Satan puts in front of us, that when we do have a choice to praise Him, it's it's really a unique, short amount of time we have mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. Take advantage of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. Shall we just oh, go ahead? I'm just saying, could you, could you? I'm just thinking what Esther, Esther's reference to the armies going out and singing. Could you pray for Ukraine? Yeah. Uh-huh. Just pray for God's. You know, there's a number of places in the Old Testament where God rescued much weaker people against huge enemies, and I would love, as you end, to pray. Yeah. Okay, let's pray together. Father God, we pray to you to ask a ask you to teach us to praise you. We pray that you'd show us the truth about ourselves, the truth about you, so that praise would be 
more natural than it is to us, that it would be just there for us without us having to stop and think, and how do I praise you now kind of thing. We pray, Lord God, for you to do this work in us through your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, also that our prayer, our praise would be a witness that would be used by you. We pray for each of us and for the Christians to be in churches where, which encourage our praise and build it and help us to grow in it. And then, Lord God, we think of where we are in the world today and we think of people who are just in such a terrifying place, the people of Ukraine, and we pray asking somehow, Lord God, that you would step in and do something completely unexpected. And also that you would avert uh, a catastrophic war from this. It would go well beyond the boundaries of Ukraine, Lord. We pray that your protection would be on the rest of the world as well. We look to you, Lord God, for this. We don't really know what to pray, except we would long to have um, the Russian armies retreat and go back to uh, the Ukrainians able to run their own government. We ask, Lord Father, for your hand to be on this. We trust, Lord, somehow that you have a grip on this. But we are pressed, uh, wondering, Lord, why don't you step in and do something uh, that is more commensurate with what looks like justice to us. Help us, Lord, in our finitude here and our weakness, but at the same time, Lord, help us uh, in dealing with the idea of justice that you've put in our hands, that it really is uh, not something we can turn away from. We long for justice to be done there, and for lives to be spared, and for your people to be able to rise and honor you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is. Make yourself known. Thank you, Travis.